Well, it's great to be with you today. Anyone glad to be feeling a little warmer today than last week? I was so cold last week, I actually thought about wearing a down jacket up here. And I thought, they're going to remember nothing except my puffiness and that swishing sound that I make the entire time. So I suffered a little bit here for you. Uh, But last week, we began our new series called On the Road, as we started our journey of following Jesus on his road trip all the way to the cross. And right away, we learned that we're trying to take way too much stuff along the journey with us. All this excess baggage of our fears, our misplaced priorities, and our need to get our own way is getting in the way of us getting where we need to get the most. So if you missed it, check it out online. But now that we've discovered the need to lighten our load, today we're going to see that Jesus wants to give us a whole new picture of who we could and should be and in what direction we really need to be heading on this journey of faith and of life. The more we become like the person Jesus is going to describe today, the more meaning, the more satisfaction, and the more purpose we're going to be able to experience starting now. And the way that Jesus is going to get this message across to us is not by shoving it down our throats, but by telling us a story. And this story is what the Bible would call as a parable. So today we're going to explore one of Jesus' most famous parables that he tells on the road, which is a killer road story in and of itself. So this will be a road story within a road section of Scripture, within a road sermon, within a road series. It's getting crazy around here, okay? So that's what we got to look forward to. But before we get to that, let's take a couple of moments to explore why it is that Jesus tells parables and what function they can perform in our overall faith journey. So a lot of writers of the spiritual life have tried to describe what the major legs of the journey of faith are, and they call them stages of faith. Stages of faith. And here are the six key stages of faith. The first would be life-changing awareness of God. There you go, that's changing. <laughs> and this is where we come to know God in a personal way. We start to see our need for him and we begin to have a relationship with him. The second stage we could call the learning stage. This is where we start to know what it is that God says, what is his word all about, and what does it lead us to do. It's the learning stage. The third stage we could call the active life. Or we could call this a stage of serving. This is where we actually start to do all the things that we hear about in church and what we read in our Bibles. We start to put this into action. We become more generous. We give, we serve, we love. This is the active life. Then the next leg of the journey could be called the journey inward. The journey inward. And this is where we start to move into the depths of our hearts and souls and we start to see that There's actually a lot of brokenness in our lives, a lot of hurt, a lot of sin that still remains, a lot of weakness that we experience that we need God's help for. And when we go into that inward journey, which can be painful, we can get to know Christ better than we've ever known him before. And the journey inward then leads to the journey outward. In this outward journey, we now get to love and serve others from this place of great depth that we've now found with Christ. Our identity is rooted in him. We don't have to go and prove ourselves anymore or to him. And we can then love with the very power that he gives to us. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, that he says, My power is made perfect 
in your weakness. Here in the journey inward, we experience his, our weakness, and then through the journey outward, his power is made perfect through it. God's strength comes into its own in our weakness. Because when we are weak, then he can be strong. And then the last stage we could call being transformed. Trans, there we go. Formed by love. It's always fun to publicly spell things in front of a lot of people. I know how to spell that word. But transformed by love is all about how we can become more and more like Christ. We learn to truly love God inside and out and love others as ourselves. We're going to talk a whole lot about this today. But Jesus wants to form us into people who learn to love incredibly well. Now, just a couple of quick things to note about these stages of faith. First, many of these stages often feel a whole lot more like seasons, like seasons. Sometimes we don't always go through these things in a nice sequential way, but we need to go through all of these different steps, even if they're not quite in this order. We often need to go around this wheel multiple times before Christ's character really begins to be formed and shaped in us. And that's how we live the best way possible. Then secondly, there is a big wall that lifelong Christians sometimes never get past, which keeps them from experiencing all of these stages of faith. So where do you think that wall might be if you had to take a guess? Let's do this little show of hands here, okay? How many think between stage one and stage two is the wall? All right, how about between stage two and stage three? A few more? How about between stage three and stage four? Active life journey inward. All right, how about between stage four and stage five? And how about between five and six? How many of you just refuse to put your hands up in church when someone does this? (laughs) Look, I got you to put all your hands up right there. See what I just did? The wall is really between stages three and four. This This is the wall. And we put this wall up because a lot of us don't want to look into the the deeper parts of who we are because out of fear, out of protectiveness. And so we never make this real progress into knowing Christ in the most intimate way we can. We can't love with as much power as God wants us to. We don't get transformed by love. And so the way that these parables work is they're stories that help get us around the wall, get past our defenses, and help take us into this journey inward. A book we're using as a resource for this series is called Tell It Slant by Eugene Peterson. And this title comes from a quote from one of Emily Dickinson's uh, poems that says, Tell the truth, but tell it slant. This means that instead of telling life, telling things as they are directly, that we do it indirectly or in a surprising or in a slanted way. So when we tell people the truth about them directly, What normally happens? People get defensive, they stop wanting to listen, and they start to get a whole lot more angry at you. But telling it slant is a way for people to actually hear what they need to receive the most. Now, one of the most famous Old Testament examples of this is a story we hear about the prophet Nathan talking to David, the king, after he committed adultery with Bathsheba and then had her husband Uriah killed on the front lines of battle. Stories like that are actually in the Bible. But instead of Nathan directly telling David that he is an adulterer and murderer, Nathan tells a story slanted about two men. One's rich and one's poor. The rich man had huge flocks of sheep, 
But the poor man only had one little lamb that he loved and treated like a member of his own family. Now, when a traveler made a big surprise visit to the rich man, he didn't sacrifice any of his own animals to make a meal for this man. So instead, he went and he took that little lamb from the poor man and he roasted it as a meal for his guest. So what do you think David's response was to the story? Well, it says he burned in anger toward that rich man. He said, that man needs to be severely punished. And so Nathan then gives the punchline to the story and he says, David, you are the man. Not in the good way either. You're the man. (laughs) And because of the way that Nathan tells it slant, David actually realizes his own sinfulness. He takes this inward journey, lets down his wall, realizes the mistakes he's made, and changes his way. That's kind of how telling it slant works. It enables us to let down our defenses and receive the truth that we least want to hear but need to receive the most. And this is what Jesus does with the 10 plus parables that he tells on his road journey and these chapters in the middle of Luke that we're exploring this Lent. We're going to be teaching three of these parables parables here in the next few Sundays, including this one. And then we'll be studying four different parables during our life community groups over the next four weeks. And so we encourage you, if you're not in a group, get in one there. And as you study these stories, be thinking about how Jesus might be wanting to tell it slant to you and not just to the other members of your group, okay? So with all that preparation made, let's pick up the story here in Luke chapter 10, verse 25, as Jesus tells his first story on the road. And it's the story known as the Good Samaritan. Verse 25. On one occasion, an expert of the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? So here we meet an expert in the law. This person, we should think of them less as like a lawyer and much more as a Bible scholar or seminary professor. Often we think Jesus, he's being tested, he's testing Jesus in some aggressive or some hostile way, but I'm not really sure that's what's going on here. I think this man is someone that the community trusted to guard the teachings of the scriptures. And so he wants to make sure Jesus believes things in the right way. So when he asks What must I do to inherit eternal life? He's asking a question that would have commonly been put before rabbis to see how they interpret the scriptures. And so how does Jesus respond? Well, he responds with a question of his own. You see, questions are great tools for telling it slant because questions enable people to come up with the answers on their own, and that's empowering to others. I recently heard of a rabbi being interviewed, and the interviewer asked the rabbi, why is it that all you rabbis always answer questions with questions? And the rabbi replied, why not? (laughs) By Jesus asking a question instead of answering the question, he makes this interaction less formal and more personal. Let's pick it up with verse 27. The man answers, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. He's combining Deuteronomy 6.4 and Leviticus 19.18. And Jesus replies, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And before this man asked this last question, 
they, these men both saw that they agreed with each other's viewpoints of the scriptures. And the conversation could have ended right there in a really friendly fashion. But the text says that this man wanted to justify himself. Maybe he feels like the conversation didn't quite end the way that he wanted it to. Maybe he was looking for a little loophole in this whole thing. Maybe he wanted to try and get the upper hand on Jesus or get in the last word. So he asks him who his neighbor is. And he's probably hoping that Jesus replies by saying, people just like you. So to answer, Jesus tells a story. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, which would have been about a day's wage each, and he gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him. He said, and when I return, I will reimburse you any extra expense you may have. So which of these three do you think was a neighbor who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert of the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So in telling its slant here to this Bible scholar, Jesus doesn't simply want to tell him who a neighbor is as much as he wants to make this man a neighbor. On the road, Jesus wants to make neighbors of us all, if we'll let him. I hope that's what we walk away with today. On the road, Jesus wants to make neighbors of us all. Now, a neighbor, according to Jesus, is someone who is transformed by love. Stage six. I believe there are four primary ways or qualities that can enable us to become people who are pervaded by this type of neighborly love. Neighborly compassion, neighborly capacity, neighborly calling, and neighborly constraint. These all add up to neighborly love. So let's look at each of these four areas. Compassion, capacity, calling, and constraint. See what I did there? Neighborly compassion. What distinguished the good Samaritan from the priest and the Levite, who were the religious leaders of the day? What distinguished them? The text says compassion. Now the Greek word for compassion is far too fun for me not to have you say it out loud, okay? Here's what it is. Splank nitsomai. Would you say that? It is a very graphic word that literally means to feel the bowels yearn. You can't make this stuff up. (laughs) This is why you go to seminary. But in Jesus' day, The bowels were thought to be the place of love and compassion. That arose from there. So what is being described here is a very visceral feeling that moved this Samaritan deeply. And no pun intended there. What the religious leaders lacked, and evidently the Bible scholar lacked as well, was compassion. They lacked compassion. Compassion is what kept this man from taking the next steps on his kind of faith journey. He built up a wall of right 
answers to guard himself from having to genuinely and sacrificially love. Because love is risky and love is costly. So with this story, Jesus wants to break down this man's wall and ours by pointing out our own need to be compassionate. Now by definition, compassion is the ability to recognize the suffering of others and then take action to help. We should distinguish it from empathy. Empathy is the ability to identify with others and relate to their feelings. But compassion takes empathy one step further. Compassion is empathy with action. Not simply identifying with what others are going through, but doing something about it. Compassion encompasses two qualities that the first two men that we meet on the road appear to lack. Availability and vulnerability. One of the reasons we lack the ability to recognize the suffering of others is because we lack availability. We keep our schedules so busy and so on the move that we simply cannot be interrupted. We insulate ourselves from the needs of others by ensuring that we have no margin in our time or our energy or even in our wallets. We don't recognize the needs of those around us because we overcommit ourselves and remain unavailable. So how could you make yourself more available to be a neighbor right now? And then one of the reasons that we fail to take action to help is because we lack vulnerability. Now probably the overriding reason the two religious leaders resist helping this man was because of either an unwillingness to be inconvenienced or more likely by an unwillingness to risk. See, most commentators believe that these two leaders would have been ritually defiled by touching this man, which not only would have required that they go through some very inconvenient cleansing process, but they would also be subject to the scrutiny of their peers. Because they were so cautious, they were unwilling to become vulnerable. And because they were, failed to be vulnerable, they failed to act compassionately. What keeps us from compassion is what keeps us from Christ. Now, the most shocking aspect of this story to the first hearers of Jesus would have been that the hero of this story was a hated enemy, a Samaritan half-breed. Couldn't Jesus have just made this point a little bit more palatable by having the Samaritan been the man on the road and the Jew, Jewish man come to be the rescuer? But Jesus was committed to exposing this tough reality to swallow. Even one's enemy is one's neighbor. Even one's enemy is one neighbor. Acclaimed British pastor and scholar John Stott comments on this unwanted truth in this way. Listen to these words. Powerful. Though there are almost no Samaritans left in the world today, there are many people we might be tempted to despise and to reject. I am thinking of people of another race, color, or culture. Homosexual persons who are victims of homophobia or people of another faith, such as Muslims. Jesus' parable challenges us to overcome all such racial, social, sexual, and religious prejudices. I am not suggesting that we compromise, listen to this, I am not suggesting that we compromise our Christian beliefs and morals, but rather that we do not allow these to impede our active love for our neighbor. 
This is what go and do likewise will mean for us. Friends, neighborly love does not discriminate. You can clap for that. Prejudice, prejudice, it paralyzes Christian love. Because what keeps us from compassion is what keeps us from God. Because God is boundless in compassion, not only for us, but for them. Whoever those them are to you, the people you look down on. So we first need neighborly compassion in order to be pervaded with neighborly love. And that is for everybody. And that means we become more available and more vulnerable. Secondly, we need neighborly capacity. Neighborly capacity. Many commentators believe that the Good Samaritan would have been a business leader of some sort. Why? Because he had the resources necessary to care for this man in need. What the Samaritan did would not have been cheap. But just imagine if the Samaritan only had compassion and lacked capacity. Would this man actually have survived? Now, where would the Samaritan have received his resources to help? Well, most likely through his work. He would have received the skills and the compensation to make a difference. That was his capacity. Neighboring requires both compassion and the capacity to do good. Compassion reveals the need. Capacity meets the need. One of the growing movements in the larger church around the globe that I am most enthusiastic about is the faith and work movement, a movement dedicated to helping people live out their faith in and through their jobs, whether it be in the trades, the marketplace, the academy, or in the home. Now, one of the mantras that this movement espouses that I think is so true is this, that the best way and the most practical way that we can love our neighbors as ourselves is through our jobs. That's right. To be a neighbor, you don't necessarily have to change your regular routine as much as you need to approach all that you do, especially your job, as a way to serve and as a way to love. Now, if you don't believe me, let's just imagine for a moment that we all stopped working. Everybody. Pretty soon, we wouldn't have access to many of the things that we take for granted each and every day. Food, water, security, power, sewage, we would all be on our own and life would be so much more difficult, so much more grueling and probably a little more disgusting. But God made work from the very beginning of his creation when things were going well in the garden because he made us to benefit from each other's work. This is what neighborly love is all about. Now, I think we can all all probably relate to what it's like to have to work with someone who doesn't do their job. Anyone know what I'm talking about? Like a classmate who doesn't pull their weight on a group project, or a coworker who's just lazy and, and inconsiderate, or someone at a call center who doesn't seem to care about your issue that you're trying to find help for. When people don't work well, it makes life so much harder for the rest of us. So if we want to be the right kind of neighbor, We have to do our work with excellence, with diligence, and with love. Martin Luther famously put it this way. God doesn't need your good work, but your neighbor does. So given the work environment or vocational call that you find yourself in right now, how might you uniquely be able to love your neighbor as yourself through your job? 
What skills might you develop to gain a greater capacity to love? What expertise might you contribute to strengthen the well-being of others? Now, one of our big initiatives here on the Lexington campus is to better equip our people to live out their faith in and through their work. Coming up this spring, we have a couple opportunities to do that. Coming up here on Sunday, April 3rd, we are kicking off a new discipleship course called Your Work Matters. And it's going to meet for seven weeks at the 11 o'clock hour over at Two Militia. And it's a great chance for you to get around circles of people who do similar work to you and discover how in your unique fields you can best love and serve your neighbor as yourself. And then we're hoping those groups continue to meet as vocational groups all throughout the year for us to better learn how we can integrate our faith and our work. So we're so excited about that. And then coming up on April 16th, We're hosting Amy Sherman, who's the author of the great book, Kingdom Calling, Vocational Stewardship for the Common Good. We're bringing her up from Charlottesville, Virginia for an all-day seminar in partnership with our Boston Fellows Initiative that is going to be showing us how we can seek the welfare of the city through our work so that the least advantage in our communities, they can be the most empowered. So be sure to save these dates. So to be formed into a person who is pervaded with this neighborly stage six kind of love, we need both a heart of compassion and hands that have the capacity to do something about it. And when these twin forces work together, something powerful happens. Now, if you were here last week, we talked about what your life mission is or knowing what your Jerusalem is. I'd like for us to take that a step further today. If you imagine... Your capacity intersecting with the areas where you are particularly compassionate. This intersection right here, this overlap, is probably the sweet spot of your calling. Right here. Where what you can do combines with what breaks your heart and you can contribute toward meeting that need, that is probably the sweet spot of your calling. Frederick Beekner has this famous quote that he puts here, puts it like this. Let's put it up on the screen because I messed this up at the first service. (laughs) The place God calls you to is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. Love that. Ironically, it's one of my favorite quotes and I can never spit that out. (laughs) Your deep gladness is where you are doing what God's made you to do, your capacity And then the world's deep hunger is where you are particularly compassionate toward different areas of brokenness in people's lives and in the world. Another way of thinking about this would be to see your capacity as your gifts and your compassion as your griefs. Now, your gifts could be your natural talents, uh, your educational background, the skills you've developed on the job. And your griefs could be things that have just caused you pain, failure, disappointment, discouragement, disease, whatever it might be. And when these things intersect, you can help to find your calling. Now, your griefs are probably things that will really indicate where you need to be most compassionate. For me personally, seventh grade was the single worst year of my entire life. And so I'm typically prone to feeling pretty compassionate toward other seventh graders. I think seventh grade is like the purgatory of human existence. (laughs) It might as well just be eliminated altogether. 
And I'm pretty sure when Jesus comes back, there ain't going to be no seventh grade. (laughs) So where your gifts and your griefs overlap is where you can find your calling. Let me give a couple examples of how this works. A newer friend of mine is a pastor, or is, is the president of a pastor's network committed to helping pastors equip their people to do their jobs incredibly well. Now, he said the reason that he's in this position that he's in, position of president, is because of how he failed so badly for so long at doing this as a pastor for many years. He said his failure fueled his calling to make sure other people don't repeat his mistakes. So his past failure revealed his present calling. So how could your past failures, past hurts and pains, fuel your calling to love? I recently read the New York Times story of Mark Bustos, a 30-something hairstylist at Three Square Studios, which is an elite salon in Manhattan that charges more than 150 bucks for a haircut. But every Sunday, Bustos hits the sidewalk and provides free cuts to the homeless. He started offering haircuts to the homeless around five years ago, and he says the idea is to simply give back. Whether I'm, at, I'm giving one at work or giving a haircut on the street, I think we can all relate to the haircut and how it makes us feel. We all know what it feels like to get a really good haircut. And it's nice when you get a fresh one and people take notice of it. <clears throat> oh, stop, stop, that's all right. So whether it's at work or on the street, Bustos lives out his calling by doing really good work. He's a great example of wetting your capacity, his ability to cut hair with his compassion, those who need his services, and that's helping him find a particular aspect of his calling. So use this diagram as a way to help you determine what your calling might be. But don't wait around till you feel like you've got that whole thing figured out because it takes a long time, your whole life, really. So start using your gifts and live compassionately wherever you are, however you can right now. And then lastly, we need to be aware of our neighborly constraints or the limits that we have as neighbors. Being a good neighbor does not necessarily mean doing everything your neighbor wants you to do. And the book Boundaries, which I think everybody should read, authors Henry Cloud and John Townsend, imagine what would happen in this parable of the Good Samaritan if the Samaritan didn't have boundaries or constraints. Suppose an injured man, the injured man wakes up at this point in the story and says, what, you're leaving? Yes, I am. I have some business in Jericho that I have to attend to, the Samaritan replies. Don't you think you're being selfish? I'm in pretty bad shape here. I'm going to need someone to talk to. How is Jesus going to use you as an example? You're not even acting like a Christian, abandoning me like this in my time of need. Whatever happened to deny yourself? Well, I guess you're right, the Samaritan says. That would be pretty uncaring of me to leave you here alone. I should do more. I will postpone my trip for a few days. So he stays with the man three more days, talking to him, making sure he's happy and content. And then on the afternoon of the third day, there's a knock on the door and a messenger comes in and he hands the Samaritan a message uh, from his business contacts in Jericho. And they said, waited as long as we could, have decided to sell the camels to another party. Our next herd will be here in six months. And the Samaritan looks at the man who was caring for and said, how could you do this to me? 
And the story ends there. <laughs> now, I don't know about you, but this story hits home for me quite a bit. What it teaches in a very slanted way is that while we should be neighbors to everyone, we cannot and should not do everything to everyone and for everyone. There are neighborly constraints that have to be embraced. One of these is doing something for someone that they can and should do for themselves. This is one of the worst ways to actually love because it creates codependence. By helping someone too much without any limits, you can ultimately hurt them because they never take the next steps they need to take or assume the responsibility they need to assume because they know you're going to do it for them anyways. Either because you can't say no and get guilted into doing it or you like to feel needed. This arrests the development of others. So enabling bad behavior and bad attitudes is anything but neighborly. In one of the footnotes of his book, Renovation of the Heart, Dallas Willard writes this. And you thought I was going to go a whole sermon without mentioning his name. Here's what he writes. To most people, to love someone now means to be prepared to approve of their desires and decisions to help them fulfill them. If you, if you love me, you'll do what I want, is the cry here. But on the biblical and any sane view, to love people means to favor what is good for them and be prepared to help them toward that, even if that means disapproving of their desires and decisions and attempting as appropriate to prevent their fulfillment. See, there is a big difference between doing what is good and what is desired. Neighbors seek to do what is ultimately good for someone, even if that means not doing what they desire. Because very often we desire what is not good for us. I believe one of the biggest reasons that God doesn't answer our prayers the way we want him to, when we want him to, is because we might be desiring something that's not ultimately for our good. So we should embrace our own limits by practicing neighborly constraint because Jesus did. So what results when we combine neighborly compassion with capacity, calling, and constraint? Neighborly love. We enter into that sixth stage of faith, being transformed by Christ's love into the very person and very likeness of Christ himself. This happens most completely when we let down our guards, put down our walls, and we begin to see who we really are in this parable of the Good Samaritan. See, while we often resemble the religious leaders who pass on by and occasionally reflect the compassion of the Samaritan, we most inescapably are like the man half dead on the road. The truth behind our story is that we made ourselves enemies with God because of our self-centeredness, our pride, and our sin. But despite this, Jesus, out of his great compassion, found us along the roadways of our lives and reached out as the ultimate good Samaritan, the greatest neighbor of all, who cleans our wounds, forgives our sins, heals our brokenness, and restores us back to life at the very price of his own life. By putting our trust in the greatest neighbor of all, we are set free to live the ultimate free life as people who are emboldened with the very neighborly love of Christ. 
And so when we see ourselves like the helpless man on the road, we can take that true inward journey into our own brokenness, our own weakness. And when we find that Christ meets us there, we are then empowered to live the outward journey with the very strength, the very resources of Christ himself. And when we live like that, the world finds the greatest news it's ever received. When we become neighbors, the world improves like never before. So on the road, Jesus wants to make neighbors of us all because neighbors are who God uses to carry out his purposes in the world. And that is where we will find our true purpose in life. So the question that we must ask today, friends, will you let Jesus make a neighbor out of you? Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks that when we least wanted you, you pursued us the most and you never relented, you never let up. Thank you for finding us, healing us, saving us, and bringing us back to life. We pray, Lord, that we would not just experience this for ourselves, but be willing to be changed and transformed so that we can be people of love, that we can be neighborly, so that all of our neighbors all over the world, no matter what their background, no matter what their ethnicity, no matter what their religious belief, that we can be loving toward them to show your great love. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you would empower us to do that today. If anyone here has not received Christ's love, I pray they would today. And if anyone's never chosen to be a good neighbor, I pray that we would commit to that or recommit to that here this morning. So thank you for your great love, which transforms everything. We look to you for our hope and our strength today. And it's in Christ's great name that everyone prayed together. Amen.